Welcome to Policy Chats, the official podcast of the School of Public Policy at the University of California, Riverside. I'm your host, Kevin Karami. Join me and my classmates as we learn about potential policy solutions for today's biggest societal challenges. Joining us today is Professor of Political Science and Public Policy, Kevin Esterling. My fellow classmate Zeno and I chatted with him about digital democracy. Kevin Esterling is a Professor of Political Science and Public Policy at the University of California, Riverside. His research focuses on institutional design for communication in democratic politics, experimental design, and science ethics and validity. Professor Esterling, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So I know this is a really interesting topic and this is your bread and butter as a professor. So I wanna jump straight into the first um, question slash topic. Um, For our audience, can you first please briefly describe what digital democracy is and why it's significant for us today? So uh, yeah, so so digital democracy, uh, that those both of those words have lots of different meanings. And so a lot of times what I try to do is to kind of narrow them down um, to make it so that it's something more manageable. And so for uh, the digital part, I think people who work in the field of digital democracy are mostly thinking about uh, kind of online web-based communication technology. So, so websites, uh, social media apps, and that sort of thing. And then de- democracy also can mean a lot of different things. But one thing that's kind of a, a core thing of, of modern democracy is that we want um, in a democracy for, for our government to be re- responsive to, to uh, constituents' concerns. And so they, they should be re- responsive and kind of re- represent our interests. But we also want our government to be accountable. Um, and, um, and so what a lot of times we think about those two is that uh, online communication technology it can, can enhance both of those things. So it makes it easier to hold the government accountable when you have kind of ready access to information about what your legislators are doing and how they're voting and what um, uh, what actions they took in, in committees and that, that kind of thing, uh, or what, what bureaucrats are up to and that kind of thing. Um, so, so, so having more ready access to information through the web helps to make the government more accountable. Um, but then also um, the other uh, aspect of communication technology is it enables us to have kind of a many-to-many communication that just wasn't possible in the past before the, the, the kind of current state of the internet. Um, and so, so nowadays, um, you know, I could post something uh, in a social media app or a post a video, and it could end up being seen by millions of people. And that was something that really wasn't possible uh, in the early days. And so that, that kind of, it, it has the potential to empower uh, ordinary people to be able to speak more effectively to their government because they have a sort of a, a microphone and a voice to, to speak, yeah. Definitely, and I think that one of the interesting um, parts about it is that point on accountability. Right. Um, so I guess off of that point, would you say that digital democracy and you know everything you've described, um, what it is and, and its purpose, um, was there something before that that people used to hold our elected officials accountable, or is this something that is this a newer idea that um, we've kind of um, delved into in you know in the recent years? So you can think of again that technology can make um, 
government more transparent and more responsive, or at least that's what we hope that it does. And so in terms of making it government more transparent, technology hasn't really re revolutionized that kind of, that sort of how we're able to hold government accountable because pretty much all the information that we needed even back in the olden days when I was young, we could still get, we could still figure out how our members of Congress voted and what they did in committee. It was just harder to get that information, but it, but it, but it, if if you wanted to, you could find it. And so, in that sense, kind of having every having that information all online doesn't kind of radically transform government. Um, but having uh, people able to uh, communicate enabling kind of individuals to have an effective voice in government is something that's that's just fundamentally new. Um, and so uh, in the old days, uh, I could write a letter to my member of Congress or I could pick up the phone and when I was a kid, you actually had to <laughs> dial a rotary phone to call, right? And it was just, you were just one person with one voice. Um, but now if, uh, if I wanted to, I could go online and, and um, uh, you know, com communicate to the office in a, bunch, in, in, a, in a variety of different ways, but also communicate with my fellow constituents and try to kind of coordinate um, some action in a way that I, that I wasn't able to in the, back when, when, uh, when individuals really didn't have so much of a voice. And so back in the, the old days, it was sort of uh, the gatekeepers, like pol political parties and uh, elites within a town that kind of were the ones that really had a voice in politics, but now because of this of new technology and our ability to really, as individuals, to speak publicly, that that's really new and it's really transforming how government functions. I think, yeah. And so, um, as you mentioned, kind of like the the digital aspect of of this day and age and how it's adding this voice, or at least a voice that can be heard by many, um, to individuals within society, um. What are some of the biggest advantages or disadvantages that comes with that? Like you mentioned um, the aspect that it can hold governments more accountable or uh, it can make them more transparent, um, but is there some form of, has there been aspects of digital democracy that have kind of leaned the other way? Well, the advantage is that we don't, as individuals, need to rely so much on intermediaries to, um, to express our concern to the government. So, so again, it used to be, if I had a concern, if I wanted that my voice to be effective, I'd have to work through a political party or through an interest group or some local elites, right, in order to have my, my concern kind of expressed effectively to, to government. Um, and that's, that's changing because I think politicians are kind of attentive to social media and they're, they're, they, I think it, it does really empower individuals to have a, a more effective voice. Um, but it has a downside in that it, it, um, it, when you have kind of lo lots of people, lots of individuals with, uh, sort of all expressing, uh, their own individual views at, at scale, um, members offices can get really overwhelmed with, um, all of the messaging they get. And so there's people who track, um, sort of the rise of constituent correspondence and it, the, the slope looks like that, where offices now are really just overwhelmed with uh, communications from their constituents. And a, and a lot of it is, um, you know, like, like we're picturing kind of individuals writing their concerns, but a lot of it is, is generated kind of inorganically by 
uh, interest groups kind of getting people to kind of write lots of form letters. And it really, it makes it hard for the office to kind of sort through and figure out what do my constituents really think when they're really just overwhelmed with uh, correspondence with a lot of it is kind of not, um, you know, the grassroots correspondence from their constituents, but it's more correspondence that's been engineered by an interest group. So that makes it harder for, for offices to really use that input that they're, this kind of new kind of input um, could be really valuable for offices, but it, it kind of, it, it's, it's, because it's done at scale and when you have everybody that's trying to communicate all at the same time, it's hard for offices to kind of figure out, uh, yeah, exactly what they should be thinking or listening to based on all of that noise, yeah. So would you say on that point in a lot of ways, like interest groups or, um, you know, any, anyone that, any organization or um, individual that falls under the umbrella of interest groups are kind of still acting and conducting themselves in a similar way um, to how they did in the past they're just doing it through a different medium, right? Yeah. Um, and so there's that technological aspect. So interest groups always did that. They mm -hmm. always engineered letter writing campaigns to offices, um, particularly membership groups that had kind of lots of members. Um, but it, but it just, it, if you look at kind of the data, the, the input that offices are getting, it's just kind of that, that letter writing campaign, but on steroids. And it really over, overwhelms the capacity of congressional offices, you know, at, and, and at really all levels of government. So it's hard for them to, to make sense of it, yeah. On April 29th at 3 p.m. Pacific, the UCR School of Public Policy will host a seminar by Sharon Lewis Campbell, the first vice president of the Riverside chapter of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Learn more by going to spp.ucr.edu. You can also find the registration link in our show notes. And I guess in a lot of ways, um, that kind of transitions slightly into the point because you know I've seen, and I'm sure we've all seen um, this that happen on like social media. Twitter is a big mm -hmm. one where you'll see these interest groups or um, even sometimes individuals with a huge following kind of direct their followers or the people that yeah, yeah. subscribe to them to actually go and, you know, as you said, um, write these letters um, to an elected official or whatnot. Um, and so would you say that social media in that aspect specifically has played like a negative role in terms of being able to communicate with your elected officials? Yeah, well, I think the, the main thing about social media is is the same problem occurs, you know, that I'm describing of kind of that kind of... Um, the problem of, of communication at scale when you have kind of lots of people who are all talking at once, um, that that also causes problems for the platform, the social media platforms. And, um, uh, the, and you know, it, um, I think uh, originally people thought of uh, social media as kind of a positive thing for democracy because, um, you know, in the early days um, when, when when the platforms were relatively small and just getting started, uh, people uh, thought it, it would be kind of this new way of people of, of everybody being able to kind of express their views and express their individuality. Um, and uh, and people, mostly the people who were kind of the early pioneers of uh, social media applications thought of it as a, a positive thing. And I think the reason is that they, um, 
you know, they, they knew themselves and their friends and people liked them and they, and everybody, you know, would be interested in kind of contributing in a constructive way to kind of conversations on social media. Um, but, but what's happened as over time is as the platforms have grown, the, um, uh, the, just the volume of communication is just too immense for, um, uh, that, so that social media companies really have to kind of curate the, the content that gets circulated on their platforms just because there's just too much of it circulating. Um, and then at the same time, kind of bad actors have, uh, that, uh, 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 uh go, go on to uh, social media and kind of exploit its vulnerabilities to, to pursue agendas that are sometimes uh, undemocratic. Um, so I think, yeah, and then, and then as, as, as I think you know, you know, because of this problem of scale that social media companies um, have to make use of algorithms in order to um, curate the content that, that users get to see. Um, it's just it, because it's not possible if you think about, like if you're on Facebook or Twitter and you have hundreds or thousands of friends and they're all posting things, it's just this kind of, it's just a cascade of information that you'd never be able to make sense of. And so um, social and so uh, social media companies have to kind of curate that content for you in order to make it useful for you in order for you to find using the platform uh, uh, useful. And but then the way they, they write the algorithms is a, in a way to um, uh, kind of curate the content so that people get information that they like to see that makes them kind of happy and, and want to return to the platform. Um, and a lot of times the, what, the way they do that is they provide content uh, to users that uh, is kind of consistent with their own predispositions of what, um, uh, what they you know, kind of believed to begin with because that's something that we find attractive. And so the more that they kind of give you information that confirms whatever predispositions you have, the more it, it kind of reinforces those and it leads to kind of extremism on the platform. So, so that's kind of a downside, I think, to the problem of scale. So with um, that kind of mentioning of like a confirmation bias almost of receiving information that you want to hear and yeah. it's almost more believable, um, how has social media kind of contributed to the growth of those echo chambers or yeah. the, the growth of that problem? And if so, what is kind of the, what warning should be heeded um, about the, uh, the development of these echo chambers on digital platforms? Well, um, so, so yeah, so they, the social media companies are for-profit companies and so they want you to keep returning to their platform. And what they found is the most effective way to do that is to give you information that you find attractive. Um, and generally the information that we find attractive is information that we already strongly agree with. And so as a result, they, the social media companies will, um, as they're sending you uh, information that you find attractive, you end up not seeing so much information that, that might disagree with your, your predispositions. Um, and so that, that puts us all, when we're online, we, we end up in an echo chamber where we just kind of hear views that reinforce um, whatever views that we had, they become even stronger and more reinforced. And so that makes people more extreme. Um, but if that's happening to everybody, then everybody's kind of becoming more extreme, but in the direction of their predisposition. And so that leads to um, 
yeah, to, to having a, a society that's, that's increasingly polarized as a result. And then, and so that, that in itself is difficult because then uh, if we don't hear um, kind of the views and uh, reasons for people who disagree with us, right, and only hear views and reasons from people who ag agree with us, um, not only does that reinforce our predispositions, but it makes us think that the people who disagree with us have no reason, there's no merit to support their position, that they're just dumb or misguided. Um, and as a result, we're finding it, it's harder and harder for us to be able to speak across our differences. And that, and so, and we see that a lot in politics these days, that people just have really lost the ability to disagree. And then the other thing that echo chambers do is it creates, um, uh, makes uh, users vulnerable to misinformation. So when misinformation ends up circulating inside of your echo chamber, uh, typically, it's misinformation that that kind of again confirms your predispositions, and so there isn't really an incentive for people to 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 fact check it or to debunk it, and so misinformation tends to circulate kind of um, uh, in a more persistent way inside of echo chambers, and that that kind of undermines our ability as uh, in our democracy to really have kind of a good factual basis for for politics and for for being able to talk about politics. Yeah. I think it's not only upsetting, but it's also so tricky because these are, you know, all of these companies that we're talking about are privately owned mm -hmm. and they're for profit and their goal is just um, to make as much money as possible. Yeah. Um, yet, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all of these different um, uh, companies are having a profound effect on our democracy as a country, but also um, on how, like you mentioned, how people even interact has changed so much. Um, so much so that if you disagree with someone else, um, you're less likely to actually even give them a chance, let alone yeah. potentially come to a compromise or at least um, try to maybe um, have your opinions challenged. So it's this, this next question is probably really difficult, but what can we do when these companies are privately owned? Is there any avenue? Because you know, based on everything you're saying and a lot of the talk that's been going on the past few years, there, it's very clear that there has been a massive effect yeah. on the way we um, conduct ourselves in terms of uh, so clinical processes. Yeah. So to to some extent, there's a little bit of self correction that's happening on social media now because um, if the social media platforms just become a cesspool of kind of misinformation and ideological content, at some point people are going to find it less useful, right? And 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 they know that, and so they're actually trying uh, in in some ways to kind of tweak their algorithms to make it less to sort of reduce the ex extremity and the and to suppress misinformation to, to some extent. Um, and then they're also aware that, um, uh, n n you know, not regulating uh, misinformation and extremism um, can, can lead to uh, other kinds of problems like the January 6th in insurrection that was in response to a lot of um, information that was election misinformation that was circulating on Facebook and Twitter at the time. Right, so the, so the, so so the, I think social media companies are becoming more aware that there's kind of real life consequences that they could be held accountable for in different ways, and so they're trying, I think, um, to clean it up a bit. And you you actually saw it in the recent um, this recent episode where Elon Musk is trying to buy Twitter and to turn it into kind of a wild west of um, free speech, and 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 what people are noting is that. Um, he's either just trolling them to get attention, but 
but if he's not, uh, people are think it's um, a bit strange because if he were to do that to Twitter and remove all the protections of, um, you know, sort of suppressing misinformation and deplatforming uh, extremists, if he were to to kind of remove those safeguards, it would make Twitter a less profitable company because it would become a cesspool and lots of people would leave it. And and so you see that with the Twitter board is actually taking strong steps to prevent him from doing that. So at least they're they're trying, you know, they're not fully, you know, you know, sort of revamping their systems to to kind of be good at reinforcing good democracy, but at least they're doing some things to prevent some of the harms that they've been doing. Yeah. The UC Riverside School of Public Policy is excited to announce the launch in fall 2022 of its new combined BA and Master of Public Policy program. As the only such program offered exclusively within a public policy school in the entire UC system, the UCR BA MPP will allow public policy students to complete both their public policy major and graduate studies in five years. Learn more at spp.ucr.edu slash ba-mpp for more information. You can also find the link in our show notes. And I guess my, I guess a follow-up to that would be, you know, I think that the point on, that you made about Elon Musk is super interesting and it is really fascinating to see someone, um, you know, the richest man alive actually get involved in these kinds of things. and. It really just goes to show how much of an impact um, that you know wealth and power can have yeah. um, on our democratic systems um, and you know the way we conduct um, democracy in the country. But I think another interesting point is also: Do people actually want? You know, how many people actually want that kind of um, you know landscape? So, for example, like how many people actually want Twitter to be a wild west where you can say whatever you want, versus you know the uh, because there's also you know strong supporters. Um, for and against the idea of like censorship on, on social media like what is the what are the actual numbers on you know what people want in that in that sense and then also um, are those people are those people actually right in wanting that outcome if that makes any sense uh, so uh, so that I don't know I, don't, I know that there's uh, organizations like Pew do a lot of survey of American attitudes about social media, but I just ha- haven't seen kind of the latest about that. Um, but I do think people are concerned about things like, you know, election misinformation leading to, to violence and um, vaccine misinformation, right, causing people to die uh, uh, unnecessarily. Um, and I think they're aware uh, of that. And I think you, you also see it that the platforms that really are, um, you know, designed for just unfettered discourse really aren't succeeding, like like uh, uh, Gab and um, Parler, Getter, right? Are these, are, are these, is that right? Am I saying that? Yeah, yeah that I've they're, heard of Parler. And they're just yeah. not being, they're not, um, uh, yeah, they're, they're not, um, they're really not taking off because I, I think in the end it's not really what, what people want. Yeah. That there's um, sort of un, unre- that there ought to be um, even for individuals to have some accountability when they have uh, speech, right? That they, um, right? And if you have no accountability at all, then that creates um, a kind of an undemocratic setting. So, yeah. I, 
feel I also feel like one one thing on that point, and I, I think it's interesting that you brought up Parler, which is the only one that I was unaware of, is you'll see like small subsections try to do that kind of you know wild west, as you said, um, a type of setting where the you know it's just anything goes and there's no censorship. Um, but also another thing that you keep bringing up is this idea of like accountability, um, and we've been talking about it, you know, accountability on the sense of like Twitter doing something to actually or Facebook doing something to prevent something like January sixth, which um, was obviously um, a tragedy and so but in terms of accountability on the individual on you know these services like um, there really isn't anything that we can do because you either you know these companies either input policies that have censorship or or they um, try to prevent certain kinds of rhetoric or they don't and then you get you know people saying you know spreading misinformation about you know the vaccine or anything like that um, and so it seems like there's really no um, no solid middle ground you either kind of have to pick one or the other uh, so, um, so the, the uh, when, for people who study misinformation on social media, that it's actually just a tiny, tiny fraction of people who account for mo most of it. So like one, something like 1% of the 1% account for like 80% of misinformation that's circulated. Um, so most people, I think, you know, I, I don't, I, and I, but I think that, that then once it's circulated, it ends up kind of reverber, reverberating and circulating across the, the platform. So it ends up having a, it kind of travels widely um, and has an effect, but I, I don't think that, you know, I, I don't know if, I mean, I, I, yeah, so I don't know, I'd have to, yeah, sort of how, how you, um, I, I do think that there are probably incentives for people um, when on social media, if they want to kind of attract attention or attract likes, attract uh, retweets to be kind of more extreme um, uh, in a way that they might not be in a, in a, if they were actually talking to people in an inter interpersonal context. So I don't know, yeah. And I, I guess one thing that this also brings up um kind of taking a step back and looking at it from a larger perspective is do you think that social media or any of this digital communication has kind of shifted you know the way we look at democracy in general like the idea of democracy has it shifted or is it just again the medium has changed the ideas and ideologies are still the same yeah uh i yeah i so i think social media is uh it's it's accelerating but it's not necessarily the root cause of polarization. And so I think now, um, you know, people are worried about democracy and democracy's ability to function and um, to solve uh, problems uh, that, right, to, to solve our collective problems, right? Democracy seems to be, let, you know, kind of dysfunctional because of um, polarization and our inability to kind of talk across differences. And so I think a lot of people are kind of souring on democracy. And even, you know, you see this internationally that people are, are becoming a, more, more interested in kind of authoritarian approaches to um, government in, in a way that, you know, five years ago, I wouldn't have pictured as even being um, possible, right? Um, so I do think that, that that kind of polarization and um, 
you know, the amount of misinformation and the amount of extremism is kind of undermining democracy and undermining our confidence in democracy. But I think that that was happening even um, in the absence of social media, that we kind of do it in our day to day lives and in the neighborhoods we choose to move to and the places we choose to work and our friends that we interact with, even offline, that we tend to create these echo chambers for ourselves anyway. Um, and I think it, that that's all getting easier to do um, now than it than it used to be. So people are more mobile, right? And they just have kind of more uh, sort of options for sorting themselves into echo chambers, both online and offline, in a way that, uh, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago, it was just harder for people to do that, to be able to kind of isolate themselves uh, and not really have contact with people that don't agree with them. So I think social media is kind of fueling that, and it's fueling um, that people's mistrust in, in democracy and their lack of faith in democracy, but it's not, it's not necessarily the cause of it. Yeah. Social injustice, health disparities, climate change. Are you interested in solving pressing challenges like these currently facing our region and the world? They consider joining the next cohort of future policy leaders like me by applying for the UCR Master of Public Policy program. Learn more at mpp.ucr.edu. You can also find the link in our show notes. And I think that's a really that's really interesting because you'll see a lot of people kind of point to social media and kind of blame it. Um, for a lot of the, a lot of the problems, and and like you said, it's not to say that there aren't issues caused by it, like the like the echo chambers we talked about, um, or some of the other issues we've spoken about, but um, that there are larger plays, there there are large larger factors that need to be considered, um, that are more uh, interpersonal, uh, and that aren't connected directly to social media because you'll see it so much. I mean, I see it all the time. Where people it, it's a time of a lot of change, and mm-hmm. then when there's lots of change in in lots of different ways. Um, in our society, it, we go through these periods of kind of disruption and anxiety, and social media doesn't help it, but I, I think that it's, um, it's just something that we as a society have to kind of work through and uh, kind of le- learn how to live in a new, um, in new cir- circumstances that are matched to where things are headed. And I think once we do, then, then this will all sort out, um, but, but we're just kind of going through a transition phase right now. Can you, I guess, based on that point, what, like, were there any other, just for context, what other, like, points in the last maybe 50, 20 years, um, or maybe even further, um, um, further back, would you say were, you know, points where there was some kind of disruption in society that caused people to have to shift um, their mindset, you know, is there anything, like, you can think of that would... Well, yeah, I mean, the, so the, in the, the last kind of big disruption was the civil rights movement in the 1960s, that's, kind of really is what set has set things in motion to our the politics that we have today and it's kind of unfolded over a long time but the um in the 1960s the um the the there was kind of this alliance between uh, non-southern democrats and republicans were kind of in favor of advancing civil rights and inclusion and southern democrats were 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 opposed to it um you all know this, right? And but then what because of that, the because of the passage of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act and other 
you know, things set in motion in that time. Uh, the Democratic Party became kind of more progressive on uh, civil rights and inclusion. Um, and that set off a, re a realignment where uh, Southern Democrats ended up realigning, uh, dating back to, um, you know, an initiative that was started in the Nixon administration to help to kind of lead Southern Democrats to, to realign to become Republicans. Um, and so the, the today's Republican Party is essentially the heir to the Southern Democrats um, kind of resistance to inclusion. Um, and, 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 that, and that's what we're, we're seeing. And that was, that was kind of a process that unfolded starting, you know, a little bit before the Nixon administration got started uh, up through, up through now. Yeah, it's been unfolding over time. And so, um, and I think that that's kind of where we are and it's time to, and that I think that as a society, we're kind of grappling with, well, like that's where we are and we have to figure out how we're gonna go forward from here, yeah. It's just fascinating that like the way we communicate with one another can have such a massive impact on some of yeah the... well I mean you know they talk about this in the for the civil rights movement the um, photographs uh, from Selma from the Edmund Pettus Bridge and um, you know the beatings that happened there were were really impactful on and ended up you know ha having a lot sort of changed. Uh, how Northern Democrats thought about civil rights and really kind of set the stage and, and motivation for passage of the Voting Rights Act. So like technology has always played a role. It's just been something different that those were black and white photos in newspapers and now we have YouTube videos and TikToks and that kind of thing, yeah. So I guess um, since we're kind of heading towards the end of the episode, I do want to kind of end on some of the work you're doing Oh yeah. Um, in this context. Yeah, so, thanks. Um, just for our audience, um, uh, can you first describe what um, Britannium is? Um, and then also what your personal go goals are in regards to Britannium, but maybe even beyond some of the other work you're doing? Oh, that, that's a lot. So That is a lot. So, so why don't I just try to say what Britannium is? Sure. And then, and then if, if you want, I could follow up on it with anything Definitely. else. Um, so uh, I had a project that was funded by the National Science Foundation like a decade ago, where we had a chance to work with members of Congress on um, using, uh, you know, web-based, uh, especially webinar platforms to, to think of uh, making more effective use of uh, webinar platforms um, to enable members of Congress to have um, more effective town halls and kind of a more robust conversation with their constituents on policy topics. And that was trying to get at this problem that we started with where congressional offices are getting kind of a lot of mail, but they don't really know how to sort through it. And so we wanted to help them think of ways to use uh, technology to just to connect directly with their constituents and hear directly from their constituents, but also to have constituents feel empowered, right? That they have a chance to, to speak directly to their member of Congress. Um, and so we came up with some best practices and then we did a study that where we kind of implemented those with, in collaboration with members of Congress, having town halls with their constituents and um, ended up having kind of a set of best practices that came out of that. And um, when that study ended, I felt like the next step in that research, you know, there were different directions that I, I could go in, but but what I thought was the most uh, important next step was to think about finding ways to encode those best practices into the technology itself. 
And if you think about, if you've ever been on a town hall with an elected official that's hosted on like a Zoom webinar or a Facebook Live or something, right? As a participant, you have very limited opportunities to kind of express your views. Um, and so webinars really are just m mostly an opportunity for public officials to just communicate their message to their constituents, but it really isn't a chance for them to kind of hear from their constituents and learn from them. And so we um, designed a new uh, platform that's, it's like a webinar platform, but it has much more extensive tools for um, participants to be able to express themselves during the meeting. So there's, uh, they have chances, you know, a chance to ask questions, um, see the questions that other constituents are asking, uh, to like other constituents' questions, to quote them, to expand on them, um, but also to give kind of, you know, continuous uh, feedback in real time to the, the you know, the, the moderator, the person who's hosting the event with their thoughts about, you know, sort of what the speaker was saying. Um, and so, that, so we really wanted to give participants really, you know, much more robust opportunities to express themselves and be heard. And then at the same time, we wanted to create tools for um, the person that was hosting the town hall to curate the question list as it was coming in to figure out kind of how to how to curate it effectively to know kind of what question to ask next. And so if you think, you know, if you think about if you're on a town hall where there's a thousand other people all asking questions at the same time, right, you, you need some way to kind of sort through the question list to figure out, well, what's the best next question to ask? And so we're um, we've created um, tools for the, um, the, you know, the people, the organizers, the people who are kind of hosting the event to be able to sort through the question list really effectively, uh, which, you know, like on a Zoom webinar, you just don't, you just get this flat list of questions. You don't know how to, act, like, what, what to go to next. Um, and then the other thing we're trying to do is to um, do the computer science research to design algorithms that, um, do kind of the opposite of the algorithms that we see on social media companies. So, so um, algorithms that would help uh, the, the, um, the, the host, the moderator, the person running the event to see, um, to be able to sort the questions in a way to see the full diverse set of views from the community as opposed to sort of, um, you know, whatever the loudest voices or most persistent voices, but to try to kind of find ways to make, to balance it out so that everybody's voice could get heard. Um, and also to um, build in uh, tools that check as people are asking questions, that it tests for whether those questions really are, are on topic or off topic. And so, you know, questions that are disruptively off topic would be given less priority and ones that are on topic would be given more priority. Um, and just things like that, just things to, to sort of help the moderator to curate the question list um, to make it an effective meeting, even when, when the meeting grows to a lot of people, to ha having a lot of people and a lot of participants. So we're, we're working on that now. And so we have a, a pretty stable version of the platform. Uh, and then the algorithms is sort of our next phase. We're trying to do the research to do those. That's, that's super, super cool. Um, and I think it's, it's really important work. Oh, thanks. Um, that yeah. I haven't really, you know, heard of people actually talking about um, this kind of um, uh, the developing this kind of platform that makes it more efficient. Um, usually, it's just you know um, something that's specific to something about social media, but not on 
the actual um, democratic aspect of it. And I guess kind of going off of that, um, do you have any personal um, like goals in regards to Pertainium or maybe um, other uh, goals you have going on? Well, you know, what I'd like is for it, for Pertanium to become, um, to, to develop to where it can be kind of part of the normal workflow of democracies. And so one thing, uh, you know, I've worked with members of Congress in the past, and, and, I, and I still work with members of Congress and with, I uh, have, um, you know, I, I have opportunities to give input to Congress to make recommendations. And so I hope that they make more extensive use of it. Um, but I also have a group where we're trying to think of how to apply the technology to local level meetings, which is really different. And a lot of times local meetings are a bit harder um, to manage because, um, People oftentimes have stronger views on if it's about housing or homelessness or crime. You know, that the topics that come up at the local level tend to evoke really strong responses. And so it's like a tough, uh, an interesting but tough test case, you know, to think about how to apply the technology at the local level. Um, but, but I, you know, what we would like is, is eventually for either Pertanium itself or a platform like Pertanium, uh, to become scaled up to where it becomes part of more of a routine part of the workflow of democracy and give, you know, pe people a more effective voice in uh, at different levels of government, right? But then designing the technology in a way that helps to ensure that as they're expressing themselves, they're doing it in a way that's kind of on topic and constructive. So that's what we're hoping to do. I think that's a great note to end on. We talk a lot about the negatives and the, the way yeah. that our society and our democracy has been impacted. Um, but it's great to see that there's another aspect to it, that this technology can be used for positive purposes. Um, and I think it's a great note. Exactly. To technology is neither good nor bad, right? It's just how it's designed and how it ends up getting used. So I think that's a great quote to end on. How we use technology is more important than um, dictating whether it's good or bad. Um, and it's not black or white. There are gray areas. And it's about the people that work on it and, and, and what we want to do is can help determine the outcomes of all of this. So um, that being said, we are at the end of our allotted time, Professor Eschling. Thank you so much yeah, for joining you. us for the first in-person podcast recording. Great, uh, yeah. It was an honor to have you here with us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This podcast is a production of the UC Riverside School of Public Policy. Our theme music was produced by C. Codain. I'm Kevin Karami. Till next time.